0: Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful.
1: In this week's episode, The Indispensables, Bruce speaks with Anna Mittag, the chief product officer at LifeSpeak, the premier mental health and well-being education platform. Anna and Bruce discuss how Anna transitioned from a career in law to pursue an opportunity with a fledgling mental health and total well-being company. They also discuss how her unique life experiences has helped drive LifeSpeak's evolution, along with how her empathetic leadership style has empowered employees throughout the entire organization.
0: Welcome to The Indispensables. Today, I have Anna Mittag. She is the Chief Product Officer at LifeSpeak, the premier mental health and well-being education platform. Wait till you meet her. So, uh, uh, Anna, uh, welcome to The Indispensables.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, Well, we're so glad to have you. And uh, um, so tell us your story. How how did you go from being a lawyer to being focused on uh, mental health and well-being education?
2: Uh, I'll be happy to tell you the story, and I, I would say it's a bit of a it's a mixture of uh, personal and uh, professional um, threads that 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 go through that story. Um, but uh, sort of a lifelong uh, goal of mine was to to go into law. I actually ran across an old high school diary of mine not too long ago and in it i talk about wanting to become a lawyer and i didn't really know what that meant i just knew that i liked to read a lot of books and i figured that was the right way to do it um and so and so i, I followed that path and it was a long path um i actually uh, was born and brought up in uh, montreal quebec canada um we have uh sort of two different legal systems here, Um, and so uh, the schooling for being in law was uh, a lot longer than it normally would, so it took a long time, spent a lot of time working towards that goal, and finally uh, finally got there. Of course, because it took such a long time, um, by the time I did get there and I was practicing and sort of well ensconced in my career, uh, at least the beginning of the career, it coincided with that sort of personal uh, period in my life where I started to have kids and so um, after my uh, first son was born and here in Canada we have quite a long maternity period so I was off for a year Um, and uh, when I went to go back to work I sort of asked about the possibility of working part-time at least to begin with and uh, it wasn't available to me Uh, and I just made a decision in the moment that you know what I only have this kid once, I want to have another one, I'm going to stay home. So I actually stayed home uh, with my uh, kids for about four years. Um, And then by the time my youngest was approaching one, uh, I started to look around for work in law. And what I was looking for was work in law that wasn't going to consume me entirely and require me to outsource, you know, the raising of my children. And uh, I wasn't really finding anything. Um, And so in what was to become one of those sort of serendipitous moments, um, a woman that I had been to law school with uh, was attending a workshop at her law firm in Toronto. Um, And it was a workshop that was given by a company that was then known as Mothering and More. And it was a workshop on parenting. Uh, a, an expert had been brought in. Uh, this expert sort of talked about parenting young children for a while. And then there was a Q&A session. And after the workshop, uh, my, my, my acquaintance, my friend, went up to the guy who had uh, sort of organized it and was talking to him about it. And it turns out that this was uh, Michael Held who is the founder and CEO of LifeSpeak. And during the conversation, he mentioned that they were looking for somebody on the ground in Montreal to start the program there. We needed people on the ground at the beginning of uh, our our existence because we did live workshops back then. She put us in touch with one another. Uh, I flew to Toronto. He met me at the airport and it was kind of like a, a meeting of the minds <laughs> it you know immediately st- I can remember so vividly standing in the airport and saying hi to him um, and for some reason and I don't know why to this day after we'd sort of said our hellos I said to him your family isn't by any chance South African is it and he said yeah uh how'd you know because he doesn't have a trace of an accent or anything and I don't know how I knew my family is it played that that fact play, is an important part in who I am in my career and I hope to chat about that a little bit more later um, but we immediately had these sort of various points of intersection law South African background and so on Um, and, uh, I kind of didn't really look back. Um, you know, what he was offering was the opportunity to do something on my own at my own pace, complete trust in me, build something from the ground up. I could, Organize my life however I wanted to organize it, um, and it uh, it just it just was an imme- immediate appeal to me. Um, I so loved- so it sounds yeah. like
0: that that was so far ahead of their time, right? I mean, that's uh-huh. what you what you're saying is so 2022, uh, but this was back in like 2005, right?
2: Two th- yeah, exactly 2005. That's exactly right. So. Uh, a little bit of background on Michael. I mean, he also uh, sort of law, uh, MBA, uh, was uh, working at a um, uh, consultancy firm, and he uh, people would come into his office all the time uh, talking about how they couldn't go on, they had to leave, they were burnt out. Why can everybody else deal with all the stress of life and work, and they can't, and why are they such a loser, and why can't they manage it? Um, And literally from having those conversations over and over again, he started to think about, well, what could I do that would show people that, in fact, they're not alone, that everybody is struggling the same way, show them that, and at the same time, recognize that it's not like work is going away or is going to get any easier, but maybe if I give them something that makes some things just a little bit easier, that will help. Um, and so that's how LifeSpeak was born. And it was, like, you know, like I said, uh, it started out with bringing in sort of subject matter experts into our clients' uh, offices. Uh, and it'd be like 40 people sitting around a table uh, who ha- all had teenagers, who all had aging parents or what have you. And then they would listen to this uh, expert giving you know information and advice on how to go about dealing with those challenges and then also get to put up their hands at the end, ask their own questions, see that other people are asking similar questions. That was literally the the birth of Lifespeak. And you know our the, the fundamental principles upon which the company is built haven't changed at all. It's education which gives people agency, right? gives them agency to make the changes that they need to make in their lives. Um, yeah, and
0: it, I mean, what's in, it's striking to me because uh, the path that took you uh, to being a mental health and well-being education executive mm-hmm. uh, was your own uh, concerns about your own well-being and the well-being of your children, yep. or at that time, your chilled, and- uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I had
2: two of them by the time I met Mike. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I can remember distinctly being at the law firm. And, you know, I was a younger lawyer. And I would look around at the what we called the corner office partners. And they often had spouses or partners themselves who were in equally high powered jobs. And they were stressed to the max and they were like I said literally outsourcing the living of their lives right the raising of their children the cooking of the meals the this that and the other thing I have a very distinct memory of a a lawyer I was very close with um and he had you know it was after the the holiday break the Christmas break and he came back to work and he said you know this morning when I was leaving for work because he'd been home for a while for the holidays Uh, His son, who I think was about three at the time, found a hammer and threw it through the glass front door, smashed the door, because he knew, he understood in his three year old mind that life was going to go back to the way it was normally, where he didn't see his dad and didn't get to spend all that time with his dad and his mom because they were going back to work. And this guy, who was, you know, uh, he was very shaken by that. And, um, I I don't know that – I can't say that I made the decision right then and there, but I knew uh, that I was going to have kids one day, and I knew I didn't want to live that way. Uh, yeah, and
0: how, and how sad – and just for the record, I was a lawyer for 428 days in the early 90s, so I'm with you, <laughs> and, um, uh, and uh, I, I did not have to learn uh, – Uh, two different legal systems because uh, I never practiced in Louisiana now. Now, but I got to ask you because clearly uh, you, you were doing insurance litigation. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You said you spent four years at home um, and uh, uh, but, but, but somewhere in there, Mm-hmm. You you were inside uh, in in house counsel for Cirque du Soleil. Tell about that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty cool. Uh, it was after uh, after insurance litigation and before children. Um, and um, and yeah, I uh, you know what I what I was doing then legally was you know I mean it was basically contract uh, contract law, um, but it was a fascinating time to be there. Um, It was a time of great upheaval at Cirque du Soleil where the original founders, uh, one of them kind of splintered off and the other one stayed. Uh, It was a time, one of my most sort of, uh, I don't regret it, I I couldn't help it, but uh, one of the a huge missed opportunity was that it was when I was there that uh, they were negotiating with the Beatles for the, I forget what the show was called. Uh, I think Love, it was called I think. Love. Yeah. yeah. And so my boss uh, in the law department, you know, he was going to go to London and actually sit down with the Beatles or the remaining three at the time. And uh, he was going to take me with him. By the time it got around to the point where everybody was going, I was about like eight months and three quarters pregnant. And so I couldn't go. Um, Anna,
0: Anna, if you were in the delivery room and had to somehow (laughs) just hold it in so you could go meet Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr and George Harrison, um, I think that still would have been the right choice.
2: I feel like maybe they were going to let me on the plane I think that was the problem. Otherwise, I'd have gone. Like, no no problem whatsoever. But I, I don't think they were going to let me onto the plane. So, um, But it was great. You know, Cirque du Soleil, everything is uh, in one big compound in Montreal. And so, you know, I'm sitting there in the legal department drafting contracts. But uh, I can walk downstairs and see the costume department, see them making all the costumes. Occasionally, they'll do a little bit of a, a rehearsal for a show. So you can kind of just drift on down there during your lunch hour and see these amazing, amazing uh, acrobats. Um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a very heady place to work, and it was a lot of fun. Um, and boy, what a bunch of passionate people. It was, uh, it was really quite something.
0: Well, I will have you know that the producer and editor of this podcast, Liz Richards, who's our media director, um, she is a circus performer and quite an acrobat herself, and so I had to ask about that because I know that she will be tickled as she's editing this interview.
2: Oh, wow! I mean, I wish I could say I was one of the acrobats, but sadly, I wasn't.
0: Hey, it, l- listen, you know, uh, uh, that's 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 always the news you have to break to people when you work someplace really cool, and then they say, Well, <laughs> what role do you play? and you say, Uh, I'm a lawyer,
2: yeah. <laughs> It's always a downer, um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun.
0: But 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 nowadays you are uh, providing on-demand access to expert-led micro-learning videos and digital health tools, and uh, that are I assume people can open up on their handheld supercomputer when they're feeling like, gee, I can't handle all the pressure. Am I a loser? Right. Mm-hmm. So that 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 initial question uh, that that uh, inspired the business. Um, and originally, you know you were sitting around conference rooms with 40 people. Uh, you're now serving millions of people and uh, it's now a publicly traded company, right? Uh, so uh, that must just be so gratifying to you must since you've been there since 2005, you must have played a huge role in the growth and development of this business.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. it's uh, it's my it's my other baby um, and uh, you know, it's, it's hugely gratifying. And, you know, I do all kinds of stuff now and I've done all kinds of stuff over the years. You know, there were many years when we were just, you know, four, six, eight people. Um, you know, the one constant has been, uh, my CEO, Michael Held. Um, he is, uh, somebody, I always, I always talk about having sort of a constellation in my brain. There's sort of like pinpoints of, 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 or like starlight or whatever of the, the the people who are the touchstones in your life. Um, and Michael is, is absolutely one of them. He's not only a, a colleague, but a very, very dear friend as well at this point. And he and I um, have always been just incredibly well aligned on what it is we want to do. And, uh, and that is to make sure people feel like they're not alone, like they can, they have access to really, really top quality information because they deserve it. Um, and, and also, you know, I, I always feel like I trust in our end users, you know, there are a lot of well being um, sort of products out there that are quite prescriptive, you know, like take 10,000 steps a day or, do this or log that, um, and the the LifeSpeak sort of model is here. Is this selection of content for you? Um, you know, we know that you're going to find what you need to find and use it the way you want to use it, so that it's a kind of an active and not a passive process. They're not just watching videos; they're uh, they're you know I talk about consuming them, and I feel like you know people are uh, people are best at knowing what they can and need to do for themselves and giving them the the tools and the agency to do that is the best thing that we can possibly do and on the sort of the content side of things that you know the life speak content side of things i mean i work with amazing people on the content team but one thing that has been so so important to me and something that i'm really really proud of is that we have never shied away from topics um, that are difficult or sensitive or touchy You know, we have content around suicide. We have content around sexual violence. Content on addiction, on um, you know, on on, on depression, on uh, parenting while depressed. You know, really the kind of things that if people are suffering in that arena then I want to make sure that we have something for them, because you can't really find it in a whole bunch of different places. You can find nutrition information anywhere, and we have that as well, of course. We like to have a one-stop shop, Um, but some of this other stuff, particularly when we were starting out, it's a little more ubiquitous and easily found today, but particularly when we were starting out, it was almost taboo uh, to talk about. So uh, we've always sort of push the envelope uh, where that's concerned. And I think that that's been something um, really vital uh, to our success. Because an organization, let's say it's an employer, that's a client, they know that, you know, people could be suffering, but, you know, it's, it's not clear to them, well, how do I go about saying, by the way, if anybody is thinking about suicide, uh, you know, this is what you can or should do, you know, it's much easier to have kind of a third party come in and do that sort of impartially. And we had that kind of content way before uh, a lot of other kind of well-being services did. Um, and that's, that's something that's been really important to me. And I think is, I mean, partly born out of, you um, and I'm I'm segueing here, uh, Bruce, into I think some of the stuff that you were going to maybe talk ask me about later. So can I just go for it?
0: Absolutely.
2: Okay. So this kind of um, <clears throat> dedication to uh, pushing the envelope content wise. I'm going to sort of bring it back to that meeting at the airport with Michael when I asked him if uh, his family was South African. Because my parents are South African. They were born and brought up there. They left and came to Canada in 1967. Uh, they left because they were very politically active uh, in an um, anti-apartheid way. They lived in apartheid South Africa. Uh, They did not want to bring children into an apartheid South Africa um, and felt that if they were gonna continue doing the work that they had been doing there, they just wouldn't have been able to, probably ended up in prison, (laughs) eventually. Um, And so they came uh, for various reasons to Montreal, Quebec, Canada where it snows most of the year. <laughs> so that was quite a shock. Um, but it's, but it,
0: I mean, it's different from, from, from Johannesburg, but Montreal is a beautiful and wonderful city.
2: Yes, yes, but they were from Cape Town. So oh, all right. that's maybe the most beautiful place on the, on the planet, but yes. Yeah. And
0: also I will say that, you know, the Canadian people, uh, uh, we, 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 we love our neighbors to the north. And, uh, and I don't want to uh, interrupt your flow, but how do you get 20 Canadians out of a public swimming pool.
2: Oh, I don't know how.
0: You say, hey, could everyone please get out of those swimming pools?"
2: <laughs> it's so true.
0: <laughs> right, so, so it's just, you know, the Canadian, so to go to Canada, like, good call.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, it, I think it was shocking, um, but it was a good call for sure, for sure. Um, so, so, you know, from the moment I was conscious, um, I was, uh, you know, my parents always spoke very openly about South Africa. It remains a big part of who they are. Um, And I, you know, from a very young age had a, they sort of inculcated a very keen sense of what's just and fair and what isn't. very, very keen, um, and it was it, it it was part of our everyday. I mean, my mother went on to do work in Canada that was similar in nature, um, always about uh, you know helping other people in the in the work that she did. It was particularly women and uh, founding and organizing women's shelters and so on, um, but that was the most important thing in my household and it was interesting because i uh, they moved to montreal quebec and of course they they were anglophone english speaking so i and my sister grew up as Anglophones in Quebec. Now, Quebec is a province where the majority of the people here speak French. Um, Most people are bilingual. Uh, Obviously, I'm bilingual. I worked in French for uh, much of my uh, professional life. Uh, I went to school in French. Um, And when I was younger, um, the way I thought about the language tension in Quebec was through a sort of South African lens. Um, we know that historically, uh, the f- French Canadians in Quebec did not have the same opportunity. Uh, you know, they, they you know, along came the quiet revolution that was necessary uh, to kind of reclaim the province. Um, and so I grew up sort of almost feeling a bit like an apologist for the fact that I was Anglophone because this uh, French Canadian sort of renaissance was was such an important thing. Um, And then as I got older and did everything that I was supposed to do, you know, went to school in French, practiced law in French, you know, produced bilingual children. And it's just, it's just never enough. And I now kind of find myself, it's not in any way, shape or form comparable in degree to what a. Uh, a, a black South African lived and experienced in apartheid South Africa, but I am a minority where I live now, and a woman on top of it. Um, and so, it, it's been interesting to experience a little bit of the other side of of that scenario, where just because I am, uh, my English is my mother tongue. There's probably jobs that I didn't get, particularly when I was younger. I've had comments made to me, um, quite shocking, you know. Uh, So I've sort of lived both sides of that. Um, But
0: you were starting to say that you you and Michael had this in common, uh, this this background, and somehow uh, I have have a sense that there's more to that story.
2: Um, Yeah, well, I mean, I think for me, it's really about how – my My background and my parents' background has informed the way I think about the world and other people in it. Um, I can remember uh, being in South Africa when I was young, I was probably ten or something, and um, my mom telling me the story about how her parents' uh, servant, um you obviously didn't make a lot of money uh had one week uh purchased uh, it was it was um i don't know if it was a picture it was something in a frame that she hung up in her room and my mom's mom being just like oh, can't believe she spent her money on on something frivolous like that you know like she needs to feed her family she's not making enough money how could she spend it on a a frame a picture frame to hang on her wall uh, and my mom's saying to me, uh, just because you're poor, it doesn't mean that you don't want nice things and you don't want to hang a nice thing on your wall. And that, you know, you're not a fully formed human being with the same desires uh, as as anybody else. You just have a slightly different set of means or, or, or a big difference, a, a very large uh, sort of means. And that is something that Really, really struck me at the time because my ten-year-old brain, before she got to the part about explaining how, you know, poor people want something pretty as well, I was siding with Granny. I was like, Yeah, why would she spend that money? You know, and it was a it was a moment where I, uh, you know, where it became very clear to me that if you don't, that you have no idea what other people are experiencing or thinking about, and that. Before you go around making assumptions about anything, you need to try and put yourself in that person's position. And
0: and so so and you were only ten years old.
2: Yeah, I was like ten or eleven. Something but that, like that.
0: But that obviously made a huge impression on you.
2: It did. It made an enormous impression on me. And of course, there are many other examples of that uh, in the time that I did spend in in South Africa. But I think I probably, you know, I don't know if I had that sort of capability inherent in me to begin with or whether I just started honing it from that time on. Um, but today I count the ability to put myself in somebody else's mindset uh, to be one of my probably one of my best uh, traits or whatever the word is uh, capabilities. Um, it's something that I that I'm proud of and that I do, every single day, many, many, many times a day. And I think that that ability has informed, uh, that technique has informed LifeSpeak and what we have done with it and 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 where it's going. Um, you know, I think all the time when we're sitting there, where we're planning content or figuring out even how somebody wants to receive the content, I find myself uh, sort of, brain transporting into somebody else's uh, mind and, and, and thinking, okay, what does it feel like to receive something in this way? Would it be better if I received it x way or or y way and if uh if the information i'm getting uh takes a long time to get going uh you know am i going to get turned off or do i want to get straight into the meat of the matter i mean there's all kinds of ways in which i in which i do this uh and i do it uh i do it sort of professionally where my work is concerned and i also do it where kind of leadership and and management is concerned as well and and i think it's like I, I don't, I don't like saying that I <laughs> have a superpower. But if I had to pick a superpower, um, that's uh, that's what I would pick. And I really think it was, um, you know, it comes from my background and what my parents taught me, and 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 those experiences when I was very young.
0: And that's and 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 that perspective uh, has helped you drive Life Speaks evolution and globalization. But it also sounds like and, and growth and I mean mm-hmm. after all now it's a publicly traded company uh, it's it's really come a long way in in, in the 17 years you've been there uh, but it also sounds like um, your sensitivity your uh, empathy uh, or sympathy and empathy uh, that all of this is central to being able to uh, lead from a product standpoint, from a content standpoint, because if I understand correctly what the real value add here is that if I work, uh, if I'm a sailor with the United States Navy um, and, and and I'm feeling bad about something and I don't have anyone to share it with um, that I can go anonymously and on demand gain access to videos that might help me think about it differently might help give me coping tools. Um, and, and by the way, I, I, I know that you work for Michelin and Humana and McKesson and lots of other large organizations. Um, and, and I think that what probably what's allowed you to grow is that you don't just, uh, approach folks retail, but that this is a service that companies can provide for their employees Uh, And and it's anonymous. It's on demand. Uh, I have a special soft spot uh, in my heart for people who serve in the United States Armed Forces. And you mentioned suicide earlier. Uh, So, you know, I'm thinking there could be a huge amount of value add here for young sailors, airmen, Marines, uh, and soldiers. Uh, But but for anyone, I mean, gosh, during the last two years of the pandemic, uh, everyone has been turned upside down and inside out. Your services must be adding so much uh, value for folks
2: yeah i mean i i, I hope so <laughs> and i think we are and that you know that was very um you know the way you just described it is is very much on point um you know i think about that sailor uh you know or somebody in the coast guard uh, we did work with the coast guard uh quite a quite a few years ago actually um but uh, that person can pick up their phone and, you know, put in a search term, uh, you know, whatever depression or whatever, and will eventually come across a module that's a, or a series of videos about men and mental health, for example, men and depression, men and suicide, um, and um, and it's in that moment that that person feels heard. Okay, or 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 seen. That's I think that's all I think that's the the most basic human need and desire is to be seen and heard uh, for who you are. Uh, They see, you know, they go in there, they see that they don't have to give their name or their email address or create a profile or anything like that. It's immediate. Click it and watch it. And when we work with our experts, we're very, very clear. Yeah, we want you to give a lot of information, but anybody who watches this module has to leave with at least one implementable, practical you know, tip or strategy. Um, and we try to be really, really practical. So just to keep going with, with suicide as the example, we have a 42 second video on our platform. I mean, many of them are in the four to five minute mark. We have some much shorter, more focused ones, which people like to consume kind of in the moment. And that video is called, uh, what do I say if I'm worried somebody is at risk for suicide? And in that video, in 42 seconds, this leading expert literally gives you the words to say what you can say to somebody that you're worried about like you know it's not just even generally like oh well you could talk about this you could talk about that she says the sentences and you can just take that immediately and go and use it if that's what you want to use um and so that practicality and that anonymity you're not giving away anything uh of yourself you're you're, you're taking it for yourself is vital to the program and it's also we you know it's like sharing a youtube video you can just share it with somebody uh you know in your family or it doesn't even have to be in your family you can share uh, content with anybody anywhere because we believe you know very strongly that well-being and health like it doesn't begin and end with an individual it actually encompasses that person's circle and that's all intertwined um, so you, you hit the nail on the head there and we uh you know we do it um we do it through employers. Uh, we do it through uh, partnerships with insurance companies, with health plans. Um, you know, uh, all kinds of different uh, channels. And increasingly, we do it around the world um, for you know global organizations. Um, and that's something that I think we are really well placed to do because we are Canadian-born. Um, we have started uh, we started from the get-go developing this program in two languages at once we have an English experience and we have a French experience we don't use the same experts for both we want to make sure that uh, the experts that we used are use are culturally nuanced for our audience Um, you know we don't have we don't have People sort of narrating over, uh, you know, and somebody else, um, and so we understand uh, sort of in our DNA the sensitivity around language and culture and uh, and the nuances that you have to deal with in order to be able to deliver something meaningfully. Um, and, uh, you know, we are, we we do have subtitled content, uh, and that, you know, but we, we are able to communicate that content in the, in the language that that person is receiving the content in. Um, and, uh, you know, more and more are ready to sort of start localizing content where the market makes sense.
0: And so, yeah, I wonder if mental health, Conversations, uh, mental health uh, techniques. I wonder how culturally specific do they have to be. I'm guessing there there can be some real nuances.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, we have sort of a subset of our content that we feel uh, is globally relevant, and a lot, you know. So we, for example. We have content around financial health that gets into, you know, some of the specifics. So that's, you know, that works in in, in North America. We don't try to use that elsewhere. We have some content around parenting, which may or may not resonate um, in MEA, for example. Um, Interestingly, it's the mental health content itself um, that uh, these other markets are most interested in. And that is because, uh, for example, we, you know, we have people on the ground in uh, Dubai, in, uh, in Israel, and because the conversation is newer in those markets, um, they are looking to us for for the content and there's no you know they don't want to, the, the people who are interested in delivering this content aren't interested in diluting the message um you know we have very hard hitting content around mental health and mental illness and that is what they are interested in in delivering and you know i don't think you know we would never um i don't think we would ever water down content on something that's so important in order to make headway in a, in a particular, um, in a particular, uh, geography. Uh, it's that important to us. But
0: maybe you'd end up saying the wrong thing inadvertently some. And so that I would think just from a, a risk standpoint, but also from a mission standpoint, uh, you have to be a little bit careful. I'm guessing, you know, maybe in the Far East or in South Asia, or, or, uh, you know, how people might um, might look at something might be different. I don't know, um, but you you would know a lot better than I. Yeah, I'm, an Amer- well, I'm an American. I don't know <laughs> about the rest of the world.
2: <laughs> no, uh, no, that that's a good point. Uh, we would we there would be, um, you know, we we audit the content, right? We make sure that locally um, so for example we we partnered with uh, an Indian AAP uh, I don't know a good year and a half ago. Um, and uh, we they did you know we suggested some content and they did uh, a bit of an audit um, to just make sure that the content was suitable for their, for their market. Now, they decided to do that themselves. Most of it passed muster, uh, you know, not, not all of it. Um, certainly, if we were going to be moving a little more fulsomely into a market, we would make sure that we had that ability in-house in order to do that kind of audit. So no, we're not, we're not, we're not being completely indelicate and just shoving things down people's throats. Um, part of that sensitivity is around, of course, making sure that what we do have uh, isn't going to uh, defeat the purpose.
0: And, and, and I, and, and internally, right. Um, my um, guess, you, you mentioned that you have content creators internally that, uh, and I know, uh, I, I think that, uh, they report to you, right. And, the, uh, uh, the client services, the product development, the content folks, sales partnerships, right. You're in charge of a lot of people. How many people,
2: Oh gosh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Partly because, um, as, as you may know, we've gone through a series of uh, acquisitions recently, and so we went from a, I don't know a fifty or sixty person company to we're we're, we're almost at two hundred now. So not all of those details have been ironed out, but uh, but uh, dozens and dozens. Uh, if I, I probably can't be more more specific than that. Uh, yeah, at dozens
0: and dozens, but it's all yeah. getting sorted out, and. Uh, uh, and, and I'm guessing, uh, based on our conversation, um, the wise thing would be to, to put most of them uh, in, in your chain of command.
2: <laughs> I hope so. I Look, I have, I work with amazing, amazing people. You know, and it, it's funny, as passionate as I am about LifeSpeak and its mission and what we've done over the last 18 years and where we've come from and where where we are going, Um you know, and this is going to sound trite and everybody says it, but the most important thing to me is the people that I work with. Um, they sure. are people. People are your number one asset, right? Of, they are second to none. But they but, are they, exceptional.
0: But I know that you put great uh, emphasis on your own leadership style and bringing a lot of the life lessons you have. Uh, your frame of reference, your empathy, uh, into your leadership style as well.
2: Yes, uh, yeah, I definitely, I definitely try to. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a sort of an instinctual leader. I sort of grew into the role. I certainly never had any leadership training or anything like that. Um, and at, at certainly at in the earlier years. Um, something that was really important to me was that I never asked anybody to do something um, that I hadn't already done myself, or that I wouldn't do myself, or that I hadn't already done with somebody. Um, And I I did that for years and years and years and years. And it was really important to me. And I think it fostered uh, a lot of trust and, and and mutual respect with the, the, the people that I that I work with um, and obviously today although I've done most things uh, but today I can't always I, I can't always do that but I uh, I take the time uh, to talk to people uh, very sort of um, informally uh, whenever I get the chance. Uh, I really do listen, and I am always, so there's a couple of things. People, uh, my sincerely held belief is that people are pretty much always doing their best. They're really, really trying their best, and they're trying to do Uh, The best job possible, and I really believe that, and that makes it really easy to work with people and to give feedback where 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 necessary. Um, uh, You know, I there's never been any sort of uh, malevolence or 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 laziness or anything like that, and so that already gets me kind of by the heartstrings. Like, um, and then you know, as the team. Uh, has grown and changed, and we have all kinds of people on the team. We have people from different communities, different generations. Um, it's been uh, quite sort of humbling and interesting to make sure that I that make sure that I don't get like set in my ways, and I listen to what these other, for example, other generations are saying. It's not to say, you know, it's it's funny. We have uh, on the content team, we have sort of some some people who are more more my age and some people who are who are younger, and we get into some really spirited discussions about uh, content and what it should look like and what it shouldn't look like. And there's a lot of that tension between um, the sort of um, the language of today, the youth today in terms of, I mean, it could be anything. It could be about gender identity. It could be about anything. And then you've got these sort of older people who have been around for a while, battle scarred, and we're like, oh, come on, it's not such a big deal, you know. But in that sort of uh, back and forth, we kind of net out at a place that I think is really uh, it works really well, and and we and we learn from each other, um, and that's something that I didn't expect. Um, I didn't I, I didn't think you know it didn't occur to me that that's what would be happening. The older that I got, um, but it, it, it definitely it is. is.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. It's uh, Generation Z and the second wave millennials. Uh, uh, you know, if if you're you know like I kind of consider myself. An enlightened curmudgeon, you know. Yeah, Uh, me too. And 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 they're like, nope, that's not enough. You must believe. And uh, I believe, as a result of that, um, my niece and uh, among others uh, uh, have succeeded in in reeducating me.
2: Yeah, I I literally, I mean, my two sons are now uh, 21 and 19, and on a regular basis, I'll go to them with something work-related or content-related, and I'll I'll say, like, am I out of touch? Like, am I being ridiculous? Is that, you know, and they they keep me in check. They're like, oh, my God, ma, really, (laughs) you know, Uh, and I I value their opinion, Um, and uh, let's say half the time they're right, and the other half of the time experience experience wins out
0: yeah I mean the experience is, is super valuable but uh but 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 one of the things i I love about the mindset of the emerging generation is um you know they are uh pretty intolerant of intolerance, and that alone is worth learning from
2: yeah it's funny i, I at, at the uh, beginning of the school year, my older son is at university. And he was kind of looking through the you know intramural sports teams that he could join, um, and he was looking at I think he was looking at dodgeball, and he was saying, "Well, I could join this team." Uh, he was he was saying there's a team for uh, women and trans women only. There's a team for uh, women and men and trans women and trans men. Um, there were there are a whole bunch of sort of different teams that uh, you know invited different kinds of people to join it but there was no team for uh, like a men only team even though there was a women only team and my son is you know he's like 6'3 he's you know very athletic very strong and I said well Sam like that kind of sucks like you know no matter what team you you join you're gonna have to hold back because you don't you know you're not gonna want to hurt somebody because you're so big and he's like well you know mom um I'm a young white male and, you know, for centuries and centuries, I had it really good and other people didn't. And he's like, I don't really mind now if I have to join a team that's not men only. (laughs) I was like, I was all head up, you know. But right, he was—he right. was like, he was like, "It's fine, mom. Like, relax. This is this. The time for this has come." So that and, was quite- and,
0: and, and and you know, it's amazing uh, the understanding of the macro picture and the role individuals can play in a micro picture. Uh, obviously, you've ch- you've you have uh, taught your children well, and it sounds like they are returning the favor. Uh, but, um, but, 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 you know, it's, um, I, I'm not surprised given, uh, where you're coming from, your commitment to mission, uh, the way you talk about the mission, the way you talk about your story, the way you talk about your work. I'm, I'm not surprised that you, your children are, are enlightened and they're not even com- curmudgeons.
2: No, not yet. <laughs> one day I hope they, I hope they will be, um, they'll get there. Yeah, they'll get there. No, look, I mean, you know, every, uh, every single person out there is a fully formed human being with pressures and, uh, hopes and desires and challenges and, and, and grief and, you know, um, every single person. And I try to, Consciously remind myself of that, you know, many, many, many times a day. Uh, I don't know of any other way to make sure that, both as a leader and as a as a chief product officer, I don't know of I don't know of a better way to make sure that I'm doing the best that I can.
0: Anna Mittag, Life Speak, thank you for being a guest on the Indispensables.
2: Thank you so much for allowing me to be a guest.
0: Oh, it's great. Thank you so much.
1: Next week on Indispensables, Bruce will be joined by Ben Oden, a published author, leadership development trainer, speaker, and host of the Why Lead Others podcast. They will be discussing the value of viewing your life and career as a process versus having a binary, finite approach of wins and losses.
0: If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at go to underscore podcast. That's at go to underscore podcast. Learn more about go toism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.